<coughs> excuse me, Revelation chapter 8. <coughs> I'm going to read the first six verses. We're going to be really looking at chapters 8 and 9. It's kind of a continuous narration. <coughs> Revelation 8, verse 1, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God. To them were given seven trumpets. Another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came up with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. I titled this tonight, A Time for Solemnity. Solemnity. A solemn time. You know, a moment of silence, according to Wikipedia, a moment of silence is a period of silent contemplation, prayer, reflection, or meditation. Similar to flying a flag at half-mast, a moment of silence is often a gesture of respect, particularly in mourning for those who have died recently or as part of a tragic historical event, unquote. And that's, of course, according to Wikipedia. The typical moment of silence is two minutes. But here we have a moment of silence in heaven, and it's 30. Half hour. You know, up to this point, we have observed much activity in heaven around the throne of God. You know, Revelation 4 and 5, they're singing and they're praising. Revelation 5 talks about singing the new song and saying loudly, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And then that Lamb takes that book and it begins to open the seals one at a time. And here we are at the seventh seal. And at this seventh seal, there is this long silence. Are you starting to get an eerie feeling? You know, when, when, when there's a long silence, you know, if, you're, if you were listening to the radio or something, you know, I, I heard Rush Limbaugh talking about this one day. You cannot let too much dead air time on the radio or you're going, to lose your, you're going to lose your spot on the radio. But here we have this long period of silence. And so now I want to preach about this with a couple things. First of all, the prophet of silence. Secondly, the period of extended mercy and then we'll notice the pronounced judgments, number three, and the persistence in rebellion. So let's consider this a little bit. First of all, the prophet of silence. 
you know, as I mentioned, period of silence, periods of silence are times of reflection, thoughtful observation, deep consideration, and meditation. You know, and the Bible speaks of things like this in various places. For example, in Psalms chapter 1, verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, in his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 63, verse 6, When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Psalm 77, verse 12, I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a relationship between meditating on the works of God and talking about Him. In Psalm 119, verse 15, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. Verse 23, princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. You see, his meditation gave him strength to not succumb to the enemy. Verse 48, my hands also will I lift up unto my, thy commandments, which I have loved. I will meditate in thy statutes. Verse 78, let the proud be ashamed. For they dealt perversely with me without a cause, but I will meditate in thy precepts. Then again, verse 40, 148, Mine eyes prevent the night watches, that I might meditate in thy word. You know, you get awake in the night, think about the word of God. Your meditation and reflection requires that we be still. That we be quiet. And the Bible says there's silence in heaven a half an hour. Do you ever sit for half an hour in total silence? You know, many people today, even Christians, are not still long enough to even ponder their own heart before God. I fear. You know, we live in an age of noise, distractions, activities, going here and there, spending our time, our talents, our resources freely and wastefully because we can that's the American way of life. That is the American dream. And many of them things, we would say, are good. But they are distractions, none the same. They are, there's distraction nonetheless from a real heart-searching relationship with God. Your Psalm 4.4 says... Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Numbers chapter 9, verse 8, Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what the Lord will command concerning you. In 1 Samuel 12, 7, Samuel said to the children of Israel, Now therefore stand still. In other words, you've got to stop and listen 
You've got to be still so you can hear this, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. Stand still. Job 37, Elihu said to Job, Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. You know, that means if we really want to know God, His will, we must be still long enough to hear it. You know, I've talked to people in the past about being still, about silence. One, one young fellow said to me, I just can't stand silence. I think there was an obvious reason for that, although he didn't understand or didn't want to understand. But, you know, we don't, we don't like silence. It's eerie, it's spooky, spooky, it's fearful. You know, if I was to just quit talking for five minutes, you'd, you'd get this eerie feeling, would you not? But see, when we are quiet, when we are quiet, it has a way of revealing to us ourselves and our relationship with God. That's why I think a lot of people don't like silence. In the Bible, many of the words of inspiration were penned in times of solitude. John the Baptist was a voice from where? The wilderness. Jesus spent times, sometimes all night, alone. Paul spent time in Arabia before he began to preach and teach. And he wrote many of his epistles from solitude in prison. John Bunyan wrote his classic uh, Pilgrim's Progress sitting in a British jail cell. Twelve years. Not to mention this very book we're reading, this revelation, John penned on the lonely, barren Isle of Patmos. What am I saying? I'm saying to you that in times of solitude, God speaks to us. God speaks to us. In fact, I believe if we don't stop long enough, God can't speak to us. You remember 1 Kings 19, Elijah, of course, had his contest with the prophets of Baal. Chapter 17 and 18, and chapter 19, he's running from Jezebel, having himself a pity party like you and I do from time to time. And God leads him to a mount where there's wind, strong wind that rents the rocks. There's an earthquake, and then there's a fire. But the Lord was not in all those. And then there was this still, small voice. And this small voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, God is not calling to us by some magnificent, miraculous, cataclysmic event. He simply, he is simply calling to us or speaking to us by his word. 
You know, First Thessalonians 4.11 says that you study to be quiet. I never thought you had to study to be quiet. And it's interesting, that word study there means to be ambitioned, ambitious to. The idea is to work at or put some effort into being quiet. And the reason God says for us, I believe he commands us, to study to be quiet is so that we could be still and know that he is God. I mentioned this morning, Daniel 11 says that know their God will be strong and do exploits. That's the heroic acts. God wants us to know him, but we got to get still to know him. And I believe that here in this passage, there's silence in half an hour because God is trying to impress something on the minds of men and women. And that's the second thing here, this period of extended mercy. In verses 1 and 2 again, it said, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, John says, first thing that happened was this seventh seal was open and there's silence silence and, and what they saw was of course when the with seventh seal was open they saw these seven trumpets judgments which included the seventh trumpet judgment will also contain the seven vile judgments in chapter uh 15 and verse 1 it says in these is filled up the wrath of God and of course the vile judgments are spelled out for us in chapters 15 and 16 we'll get to those later on but see you know they all of heaven you know John is in the presence of heaven there in the spirit and all of heaven sees these seven trumpets that are judgments and the vile judgments that are about to be poured out on the earth, and all rejoicing in heaven just stops. It's like time out, pause for half an hour. Could it be, dear friends, they are considering what is about to take place on the earth? You know, the prayers of the martyred saints of chapter 6 and verse 10, and their prayer was, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And the prayers, and of course, verses 3 through 6 talks about the prayers of the saints being poured on the altar, and then he takes that censer, that, that held those prayers and filled it with fire from off the altar and he cast it out in the earth and then the seven trumpets begin to sound. You see, God is about to answer these prayers of his people. God does answer. He does hear the prayers of his people and he will answer them. The prayers of the martyred saints is about to be answered and yet we know, we know that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
He is not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to end up in the lake of fire. But His holiness, but in His holiness, He cannot redeem an unrepentant sinner, and the earth is filled with unrepentant sinners upon whom He's about to pour out this judgment. These unrepentant sinners are just like Israel. By the way, there are some of them are Israelites. They are participating in this judgment also. They are like Israel who said, We will not have this man to reign over us. Let his blood be on us and on our children. You know, in this, this really, you know, the book of Revelation and the seven year period of tribulation is a time of God's judgment in purifying Israel. Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 talks about to, it's to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. But it's not just the Jews, but every person who refuses the Lord Jesus Christ has brought this judgment upon themselves. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. You know, the children of Israel said, we'll not have this man to reign over us and, and let his blood be upon our head. But every person that rejects Jesus Christ as the only way to God is doing the same thing. Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a, seer, fear, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. And when you, when you, you know, think about this. When you talk to someone about the Lord and they refuse him, they will not believe on him, they are trodding under their feet the Son of God. They're like we heard about Nicodemus this morning. They're trying to put themselves on equal footing with him. He's no better than I am. They're counting the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing. They're saying that his blood is unholy just like mine, just like yours. And they are doing despite under the spirit of grace. You know, the spirit of God is the one that draws us to the Lord. And they are despising him. You know, it's like saying, he's of no more account than I am. He's no more important than I am. Why should I trust him? Why should I believe in him? Why should I submit to him? You know, the gospel is obedience. Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica, he said that, he's, that God is going to take vengeance on them that obey not the gospel. You see, we talk to many people. You have friends, you have acquaintances that I'm sure you've talked to and they're like, eh, you know. They're really saying the same thing the children of Israel did. We want to have this man rule over us and let his blood be on our heads. 
you know, these in Revelation 8 and 9 are representative or may be people that we know. This could happen in our lifetime. But even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, they are, if there are people in our lifetime that reject Christ, they're going to receive of this kind of judgment. And the 24 hours, 24 hours, the 24 elders are representative of the saints. That's us. And we're there, we're, we are there sitting there looking at this. We know what's about to take place. And see, God is, I believe that God is giving them a half hour of time to stop and think. The world, a half hour of time of respite to stop and consider their standing before God. You know, I mentioned this morning that mercy is always offered before judgment. And here we see it again. God, God delights in man. This wasn't originally part of the message, but I read it just a while ago and thought to myself, I have to read it. This came from missionary. I'm not going to tell you who because I don't think he wants stuff put online. He said, I know this about my God was the theme for the first hour is from my devotions I have found that meditation on who God is is about the only thing that I can really give me emotional stability in this wacky world not that other biblical thought biblical thoughts don't do that but the essence of human life is the character and nature of the creator life here in our world the one who is self-existent Jehovah life Jehovah God I've gone through the first 15 Psalms writing down what I know about my God while you're translating or tweaking my translation Something struck me early in the study of the 16th Psalm, and I'm still sitting there thinking on it. He also preached on today in the first hour. It's this, my God delights in people. I don't have time to write it all out, but if you're willing to invest time, think about this. It could change your life because it will change your mind about some things. Once mankind was complete, i.e., not merely a man, but also a woman, he looked at all that he'd made and said it was very good. Until then, individual creation elements had only been good. But when he made man and woman, he said it was very good. He was more pleased, delighted with mankind than he had been with all his other amazing creations. Then sin entered. Said God could not rejoice in us when we were rebelling against him. He did it, he did it all to reconcile us to himself psalm 16 3 but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight psalm 16 is clearly messianic this is david speaking but speaking prospectively for the messiah our lord jesus christ um, isaiah 64 thou shalt no more be termed forsaken neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate but thou shalt be called hepzibah that is my delight is in her 
In thy land, Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Psalm 147, 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, and those that hope in his mercy. Psalm 149, 4. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Proverbs 11:20. They that are of a forward heart are abomination of the Lord, but such as are upright in their way are his delight. God doesn't delight in everybody, but he delights in his people. You know, the froward are an abomination. You know, God delights in his own people, even though they are imperfect. He delighted in Noah, though Noah had been justified by faith. Noah was not perfect, neither are you and I. Think of everybody in Hebrews 11. God delighted in them, made sure their stories were at least mentioned in his word. But none of them was perfect, neither are you and I. But God delights in his justified ones, and to me that is a great comfort. I would like to think I'm pleasing someone because the wiring schematic dealing with my emotions works that way. Think of who designed it. I think that his delight is based on imputed righteousness and continuing sanctification and who we will be once we are totally free from all the effects of sin. My Christian friend, your father delights in you. He is pleased with what you have already become by his grace, a new creature, and what you will be by his grace, glorified such that without fail you reflect his glory. Rejoice in what you know about God. My unsaved friend, why would you not want God to delight in you? Give up. He's in charge anyway. You might as well admit it. He has done everything to reconcile you through the death and resurrection of his son. He wants to delight in you. Fear God. Admit to his rightful rule. Willingly submit to, accept the only cleansing you can ever get for your sins, the cleansing he alone provides. You see, God's extending a period of mercy because he delights in the sons of men. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I want you to notice, thirdly, the pronounced judgments. And this is in chapter 8, verses 5 through chapter 9, verse 19. And I'm just going to read it, make a few comments about it. But it says, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire off the altar. Now this is after this period of silence, and cast it in the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. They were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees was burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and it was where a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. The third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. The third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers. Upon the mountains of waters, and some of the and the name of those stars called wormwood, and the third part of the waters became wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for the third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, whoa! to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there rose a great a smoke out of the pit, and as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. 
And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. It was commanded them that should not hurt the grass or the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. You know, we t- talked about this, those that were sealed, 144,000 Jews, in chapter 7. And it says, unto them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as a torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. They had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sign of their wings was as the sign of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. They had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is in the Hebrew tongue Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which were bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, and were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, that's two hundred million. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and then that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, of jacinth, and of brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as heads of lion. Out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by fire and by smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Now, in chapter 6, the sealed judgments, most of the sealed judgments could have been credited to natural catastrophes. But here, these are not natural catastrophes. It's very evident that somebody, some power, is shaking the earth and the heavens. These are things that are abnormal. These are not natural occurrences. That we see here. And in some of these, God releases the devils, demons, and we see his true colors. You know, the, the angel comes down from, the word star there is angel, in chapter 9, verse 1, comes down from heaven. He has a key to the bottomless pit. He opens it, and out of that bottomless pit comes these locust-like things. That's how John describes them. He don't know how to describe them. He's describing them as best he knows how. But there's obvious they're not locusts. Locusts don't sting man like a scorpion. They don't have the power to torment men. Their torment is they eat everything that's, that's green in their bath. They don't harm man really in any way other than that. But these have teeth of lions, breastplates of iron, Wings like the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And men will try to die and cannot. And they're going to be tormented five months. And then in chapter thir- 9, verse 13 to 19, you have this 200 million 
army of horsemen, he calls them, who are, again, demonic-like creatures that are going to have power to kill a third part of the men by fire, by smoke, and by brimstone that issues out of their mouths. Sounds like some kind of dragon. Some modern commentators try to make them be tanks and things like that, but it really don't fit, really I don't think fits quite that description. You know, that may be a stretch possibility, but I doubt it. They come out of, again, they come out of the area of the, the river Euphrates, and these other, these other creatures come out of the bottomless pit. That's, that's a reference to the, the abyss of hell. You know, when, when Jesus cast out the demons and they went into the hogs, those demons asked him, don't cast us out into the abyss. In other words, don't cast us into that bottomless pit. But there are some fallen angels that are already in that bottomless pit. That's a whole other study in itself. But this angel opens it and lets them out. Again, what we see here is the devil's true colors. These are his children. These are the lost men of the earth. And he's tormenting them and he's murdering them. In fact, he's going to kill a third of them. But you know, think about it. The only sure way the devil can secure your place with him in the lake of fire is to kill you before you repent. He's not a nice guy. You see, this is what they saw. When the Lord, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, opened that last seal. And to me, the picture is, they're like a goss. Oh, my. Oh, my. Because this would be people that they knew. And, of course, this is souls that Christ died for. But we see also, fourthly, the persistence of rebellious man. Look at verse 20, chapter 9, verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. You know, despite this period of silence, contemplation, and then this cataclysmic, miraculous signs of and judgments upon the earth that only God could do. Only God has the power to open the bottomless pit. Only God has the power to turn uh, uh, to, to, to make a star fall out of heaven. You know these are the same kind of plagues that happened to the Egyptians that the Magicians could not repeat. 
Yet despite all that, man persists in his rebellion against God. They're going to continue in their murder, slaughter of innocents. They're going to continue in their sorceries, use of drugs for poisoning or altered states of consciousness. All these things are very prevalent in our world today. Fornication is any kind of illicit sexual sins. And then theft, increasing or promoting of legal theft. By the way, that's what socialism is. And that's being promoted in our world, in our country. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. You know, some might say, Pastor, how can God bring such judgment? Well, Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says this. Let's read verse 4. Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasures up unto thyself, wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. I want you to notice verse 5 in particular. It says, After thy hardness and penitent heart, treasurest up. You know, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6 to lay up treasures in heaven. You know, when you lay something up, or you treasure something up, it's like, it's like, you know, you're saving or you're, and you're increasing that saving. Well, here it talks about the unsaved through their impenitent or unrepentant heart and their hardness, they're saving up. They're adding to the wrath of God against them. It's like they're continuing to say, no, we don't want you, we don't want you, and you're no good, and we don't need you, and we're just as good as you are. And they keep adding to God's wrath against them. You see, the greatest insult this world, this universe has ever experienced or done is to tell God that his substitute for our sin is not worthy of us. It's not worthy of my worship. It's not worthy of my obedience. And the Bible says that he's going to render to every man according to his deeds. In other words, they're going to get justice. They're going to get justice. You know, in the end, you and I are going to get justice. Now, I'm thankful my justice was meted out on my Savior. I can accept him or I can receive the eternal judgment that God's going to mete out 
But either way, God's going to render to us according to our deeds. And so we need to take, the point I want to make tonight is this. We need to take time to be still and consider that one of these days, you know, the sum whole of life is that one of these days we're going to have to stand before God and give an account. And we're going to either be in heaven and seeing this seal opened and the terrible things that are going to take place on the earth, or we're going to be receiving of those judgments. But we are going to receive according to our deeds. And we need to meditate and think about the fact that those people we meet outside those doors may be the ones who are going to receive of this judgment. And we, like our Savior before us, need to seek him. Need to witness to him. Are you prepared? Do you know the Lord? Have you received his? Do you Have you received God's sacrifice for your sins? You know, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verse 27, not Hebrews 11, Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. Have you come to God by surrendering to Christ, receiving him as your Lord and Savior? Are we prepared?